carry him off as well. These three had become the fabled great triumvirate of American government. More than mere symbols of the Republic, they became personifications of it. The South Carolinian Calhoun was the South, with its growing frustrations and emerging belligerency over the slavery issue. New England's Webster had become the conflicting ambiguities of the North, with its moral repugnance over slavery, and its allegiance to a country constitutionally bound to slavery's preservation. And the Kentuckian Clay was that national ambiguity defined. He was a Westerner from the South, yet he was not Southern because he deplored slavery. His owning slaves, however, meant that he was not Northern. When an admirer said that, you find nothing that is not essentially American in his life. It was meant as a compliment in a divisively sectional time, but in retrospect it was also a warning to the country. Like Henry Clay, it could not long continue to own slaves while denouncing slavery. When Congress met on June 30th, however, it was more in the mood to celebrate Clay's life than to find portents in his death. Some members quoted poetry. Some of it was good. Several remarked on his humble birth and his admirable efforts to rise above it, a theme that had already become an American political staple by the mid-nineteenth century, an obligatory credential for establishing one's relationship with the people. And though in some cases, such as Clay's, it was an exaggeration for election campaigns. He had indeed risen, and no less spectacularly because he started from relative comfort rather than poverty. His success resulted from ceaseless labor and fastidious attention to detail. Kentuckian Joseph Underwood reminded the Senate that Clay had been neat in everything from his handkerchiefs to his handwriting— Underwood was not just talking about wardrobes and penmanship. All realized, some grudgingly, that Clay had become a great statesman. They also had to admit, again, some grudgingly, that he had been usually a jovial adversary with his opponents and always an endearing companion to his friends. New York Whig William Seward, destined to become Abraham Lincoln's Secretary of State, did not particularly like or admire Clay, but he nevertheless dubbed him the Prince of the Senate, and recalled that his conversation, his gesture, his very look, was persuasive, seductive, irresistible. A House Democrat paid tribute to the peerless orator for the silvery tones of his bewitching voice, and a Kentucky Whig said, He reminded us of those days when there were giants in the land, concluding with Shakespeare's Antony describing Brutus with, Say to all the world, This was a man. The reference to Julius Caesar was ironic. The closest thing to an American Caesar in Clay's time had been his most implacable foe, Andrew Jackson, for near a quarter of a century, Virginia's Charles Faulkner observed, 
This great republic has been convulsed to its center by the great divisions which have sprung from their respective opinions, policy, and personal destinies. But that didn't say the half of it. Andrew Jackson's shadow had cast a pall over Clay's political life for more than a quarter century in some way or other, starting with Clay's criticism of Jackson's foray into Florida in 1818, their rivalry in the 1824 presidential contest, and clashes during Jackson's presidency that included the titanic struggle over the National Bank, a political brawl so devastating that it was called a war. Clay had lost that war. In fact, he had lost almost every time he challenged Andrew Jackson. And worse, he was defined for many Americans by the accusation...